Hello, my name is Adam Eason. Welcome to episode 100 of Hypnosis Weekly. Hypnosis friends and a very, very warm welcome indeed to Hypnosis Weekly. So this is the centenary edition of the podcast. Hurrah! This is the 100th edition. I'm delighted. Um, And today's a special edition. It has elements of being a hypnosis geek fest. And I shall be handing over the question asking to my good friend, Mr. Kev Sheldrake, the one and only, and sitting in the guest seat myself today. Um, so, so Kev Sheldrake, he's, he's been a supporter of this podcast since its conception. You know, he was he was my featured guest in the second ever edition of this podcast back in the days when when, when Hypnosis Weekly was new, and I was asking all my all my friends within the field to come and be interviewed by me as a way of getting it up and running and helping me set the tone for how I wanted it to be. And and that was four and a half years ago. And Kev and I had known each other for a for a fair while before that. Um, initially, uh, we met uh, when I was speaker at the Change Phenomena Conference that Kev used to organise with his, his former partner in crime, Anthony Jackwin, uh, within their their highly regarded, very popular head hacking company. Um, and, and Kev's approach and attitude always resonated very well with me. And in more recent times, he's become someone that I really like to have a drink with and share laughs with too. I happen to have seen him a couple of times in recent months at events, and, and he sowed a seed in my mind of, of us doing an edition of the podcast where he asked me about my research and, and we go deep into a couple of topics that he knows are close to my heart. Um, and we exchanged a couple of emails and I thought it would make a great 100th edition and, and suggested that to him. And, and this is the result of that. Um, I talk about some of the key findings in my recent research and I offer up some concepts and some ideas that have been born out of that research that I think start to challenge a lot of the current ways um, that the field of hypnotherapy functions. It starts to shake at the foundations, does the field, um, it, it, in, in response to some of the, some of the, the, the things that I'm offering up here. Um, and, and in fact, what I thought was really interesting about this discussion I had with Kev is that Kev actually starts to draw some conclusions within our discussion that I was saving for a potentially quite controversial grand finale within the discussion. Um, I hope you'll get excited about it too. I hope you'll find it stimulating. And, and you know, I think there's a lot of value here. I lay a lot of important stuff out um, and Kev chips in with some great insight, some, some important reflection and consideration too. There'll, there'll, there'll be just this interview and, and then this episode will end and I'll be back next episodes to, to some semblance of the usual format of this podcast with, with new guests and much more besides in coming weeks. Um, I just want to thank you all from the bottom of my heart. There seems to, to be a lot of love out there for this podcast. Um, when it was off air for a few months earlier this year, I was taken aback by the amount of people who messaged me um, to ask when, when it was returning. Um, and I thought to myself, if only those bloody people would give me a good review at iTunes, that would be awesome. I'm just kidding. Um, I was genuinely taken aback by the responses, the requests, and the feedback continues to be great. And and I really enjoy doing this podcast. I've always felt like my task and this kind of self-appointed remit 
remit that I've kind of given myself with my work was, was a bit like guerrilla warfare and that I was a rebel and a, and a minority. But in recent times, I'm beginning to feel like, like I'm sort of stepping into mainstream just a tiny bit, despite me challenging the status quo within the hypnotherapy field. And despite me being a bit of a thorn in the side um, of much of what is mainstream within this field. Um, um, the, the aim has always been to do those things with the best of intentions, not to just argue for the sake of it, um, but with the intention of friendship, of community, with fun and laughter and, and, and you know, bringing the, for, the, the entire field forward with, with, with laughter and joy. And, and, and I think it enabled me to ask some tough questions of our field and to turn some light bulbs on. And I work hard at that. Um, and, and, you know, I have my fair share of existential suffering as, as, as my work gets exposed to more people. It tends to make me a bit nervous. And um, um, today, however, that support that I receive tends to outweigh the snipes and the dissenting perspectives. Just... Um, but the aim remains the same. Embrace the diversity of the field. Aim to develop the field. Create more unity, understanding and, and create more critical thinking within the field. Um, so when this interview, this discussion with Kev ends, this edition will also end. So I just wanted to say my thanks now. Um, a massive thanks to all of you that have tuned in during the last four and a half years of this podcast. Thanks to those of you who continued to do so. Um, I appreciate you massively and I send you much love. For now, get comfy, my friends. Turn up the volume. Sip on your tea. Enjoy the 100th edition of Hypnosis Weekly. <music> So, as has just been uh, explained by Adam, this is a very special podcast for Adam's 100th episode, and I'm here, I'm Kevin Sheldrake, I'm here with Adam Eason, and we're going to get into it now. Yeah. So, um, Adam, uh, I, you've been working on um, some academic research of recent, recently to, with your uh, PhD that you're studying for at Bournemouth, and I know that you published a paper recently. I was wondering if you could just explain um, sort of briefly or, or in as much depth as you really wanted to go into yeah. what your paper was um, looking into and, and what kind of findings um, did, did that show up? So um, this particular paper, my, my, my first paper to be published, but it'll probably in, in, in the sort of direction of my PhD, it will probably be the, the kind of second component. Um, um, but I'll explain that in a moment. It, so it was, it was called the, the Clinical Applications of Self-Hypnosis. It was a systematic review and a meta-analysis of randomised controlled trials. So one of the things that made it significant is the fact that um, um, it, it was the first ever uh, meta-analysis and, wow. um, and, and structured... Um, um, systematic literature review. So, you know, w w for, for people that are not familiar with what that means, it just means that there was a, a systematic inclusion criteria for, for studies that made it into this particular review. Um, and, to, and to give you some kind of an, an idea of what that means is, you know, our, our initial search strategy was looking throughout um, um, searches of Cochrane Library, Medline, PsychInfo, PubMed, Scopus—you know—a lot of a, a lot of classic 
um, um, databases using the terms like self-hypnosis, self-hypnotic, auto-hypnosis. Yeah. Um, and and uh, so uh, uh, th th that search strategy initially yielded 576 records, you know, where we were just looking for academic papers. Um, but once we'd, once we'd excluded duplicates, what we were left with, and when we, when we sort of excluded anything that was not a randomised controlled trial, we ended up with 22 studies. We ended up with 22 studies. Um, um, do, you, do, you want to, do you want to explain what a randomised controlled trial is? Please? Yeah, so, so basically it, it, it's, it's kind of like the, 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 the gold standard for, for, um, for, 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 for a clinical experiment of, of this kind. So that is that the, the sample, the people that were in it, were randomly assigned. So that is, they hadn't volunteered necessarily for specifically for this particular intervention. And then they were randomly assigned to different groups. So that is either the, the control group or the experimental group. Um, um, control, the controlled element means that it's being measured against something. Now, for us, that had to be... Um, um, that had to be... A, a, uh, uh, an application it was being measured against that is um so so in trials typically um, um if, if hypnosis is being compared or self-hypnosis is being compared to nothing and it works better than nothing that shows that it has efficacy what we were looking at was effect where something has an effect where uh, i.e it outperforms either standardized uh, approaches or, or, or conventional approaches or other things. So as control conditions, we included, you know, standard care, conventional treatments, or basically an, another active or psychological therapy, such as biofeedback or cognitive behavior therapy or psychodynamic mindfulness, those kinds of things. Um, waiting list control groups were also included. Um, um, it, it's shown that, that when people are on a waiting list for um, for, for you know for, for an application of some kind or for a treatment of some kind they tend to get better anyway so um, um, that's that's what we that's what we're talking about with regards to randomized controlled trials you know where, where they're you know a good structure randomized sample um, and self-hypnosis being measured against an active control group um, and, and I guess um, significantly these are peer-reviewed academic papers that we're talking yeah, about here absolutely only only um, um, um yeah, yeah so so these th these are only trials that have appeared in peer-reviewed um peer-reviewed journals so um, um my you know my this meta-analysis my paper was in the has been published in the psychology of consciousness which is an apa american psychological association journal uh, and the peer review board um so for people that aren't aware um, um, in order for them to publish any paper in their journal, um, it has to go through a peer review. And you can initially, when you submit your paper, you can you can make suggestions for people you think would you, you'd like to have review. Um, but yeah. then ultimately and typically, they will tend to choose people that have contrasting opinions to those cited in the paper, so that it gets examined with some rigor. Mm. Um, and and you know that the first couple of submissions of my paper, this particular paper, were were you know were were, were tough. I've got to be honest. You know, yeah. you, you kind of put all your 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 love and effort and energy into a paper, and um, and your research that you've been working really hard on, 
and a couple of the reviewers in particular were really scathing and you know for me I, I interpreted that as them being rude uh where you know that th th they weren't really being you know my paper yeah. as, as it is now as it is now in its published format is exponentially better than when i first submitted it thanks to oh. that peer review process despite the peer review process wanting you know making me feel like i wanted to cry uh, on several <laughs> occasions <laughs> that's good though isn't it i mean that's uh, out of that you've got a better quality paper um and you know that some of the harshest critics um were, you know from a, from establishments where and and backgrounds where they've they Absolutely. they are trusted people have had their um, their questions or their criticisms addressed. Exactly. You know, that, that's, that's got to be quite a strong, good Absolutely. thing. And, that, and, and that's what makes it solid. And that's what makes um, that's what makes it something to be really proud of, you know, um, as far as I'm concerned. Um, so what, so, so we ended up with 22 studies. Yeah, so, yeah. so we ended up with 22 studies. Um, and and my, my paper basically reports a meta-analysis of the findings um, um, uh, you know, I won't go into the stats as far as that's concerned, as far as effect size is concerned, but um, I'm at a medium to good effect, um, effect size as far as self-hypnosis is concerned, and, that, and that's good. That's a, that's a good performance. But ultimately, it, it got kind of... It, we ended up with, with a number of categories that we ended up dividing everything into. So there was there were the studies on pain that covered pain and um, self-hypnosis was shown to be effective in there. We um, um, also showed um, another category was stress and anxiety. And there were um, there were three studies of that of that kind. There were some additional studies, including ones um, to, for strengthening immune functioning. There were studies for where um where self-hypnosis was was used in reducing tinnitus symptoms and and reducing hay fever um symptoms for example um but the one area that was quite perplexing to us and i'll explain why in a moment is because is is the the area of self-hypnosis and childbirth and one of the big findings and one of the big one of the big sort of takeaway points from this particular paper was that there were there were four studies that met our inclusion criteria um, to, to make it into the paper. And of those four studies, only one was effective. And the three, three that were not effective was were, were the three biggest and probably the best structured studies. Uh, one was by Down and colleagues in 2015 that was conducted by the, 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 in, in conjunction with the NHS here in the UK. And the other two were conducted um, by, by Werner and colleagues, um, a, a well-renowned, back in 2013. Um, and, and so the researchers found no difference between self-hypnosis trained participants and the control groups in those, two, in, in those three studies. And there were big studies, you know, where several hundred participants had taken, had taken place, um, taken part in the study. And, and that's quite rare for, for self-hypnosis studies. But so overall, the evidence was suggesting then that the application of self-hypnosis in obstetrics was not efficacious. But, you know, and, and, and you know, as we started to delve deeper into these particular studies and start to really examine them, you see that in these three massive studies, self-hypnosis was defined as listening to audio recordings. And it involved 
no specific self-regulated self-hypnosis skills and did not involve any kind of um, 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 development of a skill set. Um, in the one study um, to show up, um, the one obstetric study that, that was a success in our, in our review um, that did involve self-directed practice sessions, you know, that, that, that was a success, that particular one. Now, what started to make this even more contentious then, as far as we were concerned, as far as what we were, what we were saying, because, you know, I personally contend that listening to audio recordings is not actually much different to listening to heterohypnosis, that engaging with heterohypnosis. It's just that the, the, the hypnotist is not present. So we were almost able to start I and mean, we could make the suggestion, we could make this, we could suggest it without kind of really having this as a supported statement. But we were able to start suggesting that as far as obstetrics is concerned, self-hypnosis is potentially better than heterohypnosis. And, and so oh. we started to sow these seeds. Uh, but certainly self-hypnosis, when defined as audio recordings, um, um, it's no way near, it's just not efficacious, but the self-directed, self-regulated um, um, self-hypnosis skills demonstrate that, that it, an effect could, could happen and could, could start to, to, to become important. Yeah, and this, this is one of the things I, I, that hit me when I was reading your paper, is that had somebody else done this meta-analysis and not made the distinction necessarily between uh, self-directed hypnosis uh, or training in self-hypnosis versus listening to recordings. Yeah. Um, if they'd lumped all that together, the meta-analysis would quite probably have shown overall no effect for self-hypnosis because those studies were so large, they would have quite heavily dominated the numbers of people within those kind of papers. Absolutely, absolutely. Would have, would have really dented, would have really so dented you, it. So you... Um, likely have, have drawn something out here that could easily be missed by people doing um, a, a simple review of the literature but with, without noticing the distinction and I think the distinction they all say the devil's in the detail I think that distinction is what is showing um, which things that get called self-hypnosis actually work and those things are not as you're saying listening to audio recordings by hypnotists. Absolutely. You know, of, of the 22 studies that we ended up reviewing, 18 found that self-hypnosis was an effective treatment. That is, it out, you know, and, and 14 of those outperformed active controls. Now, mm. of those four studies that didn't find any effect compared with controls, three of which were all in, in childbirth, um, in childbirth studies, self-hypnosis involved listening to heterohypnosis recordings only, and we purposely refer to them in in the paper in the in the latter latter parts of the paper as listening to heterohypnosis recordings because that's that's what we believe them to be, um, and and none of those studies that that, that didn't show an effect um, taught self-directed or self-regulated skills. Now we felt therefore that this this that in and of itself warranted another paper which 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 I can speak to you about shortly but but that um but 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 you know for, for, for the sake and the purposes of this this particular paper um we found that you know that that, that was one big finding for us and something to, to kind of shout about and talk about yeah um, no, it's, this is really, really important and really big thing absolutely and um that the self-hypnosis 
is just that, you know, that it is self-hypnosis, that it is self-directed and self-regulated. Um, and it's not just hetero-hypnosis um, um, conducted via audio. Um, which is what we contend. That's what that's what they are. Especially with no audio record, especially with no self-directed or self-regulated practice. Even you know they didn't even encourage self-directed practice. Yeah. So, so so where are you going next? What is what's the next thing that you're you're looking at? Well, um, I'm, I'm, because I, I will build upon that point in just a moment. But but one of the one of the other things that I just wanted to say. Um, sure. with that as well um, the other thing the other really interesting point that probably starts to that I'm going to build upon um, that probably starts to to actually uh, a lot of people that listen and tune in regularly to, to this podcast actually will probably be a slightly offended by <laughs> is that actually we found that it didn't matter whether self-hypnosis was precursored with hetero-hypnosis or not um, um so so for example on, on my self-hypnosis seminars anymore i do not do group hetero hypnosis as a precursor to the self-hypnosis and in fact some authors contend that um, um that that you, when when hetero hypnosis happens first that actually people's self-hypnosis skills go downhill and what starts to happen is instead of creating real genuine self-regulated self-directed self-created self-hypnosis experiences they're dipping into memories of hetero hypnosis and mm. and that they're trying to recreate something and and revivify something there so the reason i mention this is because then with these two points you know that self-hypnosis is 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 potentially more effective than than hetero hypnosis that hetero hypnosis is not necessary as a precursor and with there being such a variance in the definition of and methodological approaches to self-hypnosis um, um, after we've done the after we've done the the meta-analysis and the literature review it kind of made sense for us then to actually start putting a paper together that talks about the the the, the theoretical importance of self-hypnosis and its importance and its contribution and its relationship with hetero-hypnosis. Mm. Um, so, so the second paper then is, is we're just in the process of, um, of, of submitting it. Um, I'm just in the process of submitting it to, to a journal. Um, it's, it's most likely going to be the International Journal of Experimental and Clinical Hypnosis. Um, um, so, so having highlighted these ways in which self-hypnosis has been proven to be effective within the review, um, we started to say, well, look, the, the definition of self-hypnosis initially seems quite clear, you know, the, the induction of oneself into the hypnosis process. But because there'd been such little, so little consistency and methods used to instruct it or to produce it, um, um, we wanted to have a discussion about about what it was. You know, what actually is it, and what what, what actually do people need to do, and what's what's the best practice, for example, yeah. and what's the relationship with hetero hypnosis. Um, I mean, for example, for example, if we look at dissociation theories of of self hypnosis, I mean, Lynn Kirsch, um, and back in the nineties, actually said, "Well, look, self the, the existence of self hypnosis, surely." renders dissociation theories impotent because because you know how can you fully hand over executive control 
elsewhere and still be able to do self-hypnosis, for example. Um, you know, how can you how can you be dissociated and <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, from the self, and yet still be able to command and self-regulate and self-direct, as as yeah. we began to show, is is what makes is is what's at the heart of self-hypnosis. So, you, you know, um, um, I don't want to go I don't want to go too deeply into things like dissociation and dissociated control theory because it has been modified a bit these days dissociated control theory um, um but it, it, you know it self-hypnosis in and of itself started to have some some theoretical importance that we wanted to, to start raising and start start talking about and when doing that i then stumbled across a guy called Roosh, who was writing papers when i was two years old <laughs> um, so that is back in the mid 1970s. He he was writing about self hypnosis and comparing self hypnosis with hetero hypnosis, and his study in 1975 was was saying actually um, um, that that self hypnosis, when conducted first, made hetero hypnosis better, but when hetero hypnosis was a precursor to self hypnosis. Actually, self-hypnosis and hetero-hypnosis were impaired. And he concluded that yeah, self-hypnosis was the primary phenomenon. That self-hypnosis was the primary phenomenon and that that comes first and that should come first. And so, you know, for me, for, this started to influence me and started to influence the direction of this particular paper. Um, and we started talking about that, that but kind of theoretically. We also started to examine the phenomenology. Um, the, the biggest work, the biggest kind of contribution really to the self-hypnosis field is probably by Erica Fromm um, and her colleagues in the 70s and early 80s. Um, and, and they probably talk about self-hypnosis quite different to that which I do. Um, yet, one of the things that one of the main ways in which they differentiated between heterohypnosis and self-hypnosis was phenomenologically. That is, um, people's, people's experience um, of self-hypnosis and what they could do whilst the, 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 they were either self-hypnosis or, or heterohypnosis. And typically, one's level of control and self-efficacy was raised with self-hypnosis. Um, but when being spoon-fed heterohypnosis, there were other other qualities there, which you know sometimes um, sometimes the imagination was considered to be bigger with self-hypnosis because people were able to dictate their own experience. But with heterohypnosis, people tended to experience a higher level of absorption, as well as a kind of lessening in their connection to reality. Um, um, because, you know, th th they could just kind of lose themselves in it w when they're not having to be more cognitively active and self-controlling as, yeah. as they were with self-hypnosis. So the big, the initial differences that we started to find were phenomenologically um, and, and theoretically. We had these, these, these kind of early experiments where people were saying that self-hypnosis and heterohypnosis were actually were actually quite different um, um, in, in the ways in which they fed each other. Because, you know, let, let's be honest, the vast majority of people that learn self-hypnosis are learning it in the context of a hypnotherapy environment the vast mm. majority of the time. Um, so the two are going to be interrelated. 
I mean, I find this 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 is fascinating um, for me because you know, obviously I've read, uh, you know, around the subject in certain areas. Um, but I mean, the the things you're talking about seem to fit um, well with the work of, say, Spanos Scorsini, uh, where um, they they were changing the um, uh, how responsive to suggestion uh, subjects might be through training, um, and you could argue that what they're doing is teaching them how to use their brain in a way that works. And what they're, what they're teaching them is skills that they then use within a hypnotic context. Absolutely. The linkage between that and self-directed hypnosis has got to be there. It's got to be a strong thing, I think. Absolutely. Um, well, funnily enough, funnily enough, the, 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 the best process, the best protocol that, that we came up with, according to the evidence within the, within the previous paper, that the meta-analysis actually was very similar to that of the Carlton Skills Training Programme, just with the omission of having had any heterohypnosis beforehand. So, so what? So having having a good degree of education, potentially, you know, seeing it modelled and seeing it explained, and then practice and practice yeah. and practice. So, um, you know, but by omitting from the Carlton Skills Training Programme um, that the heterohypnosis component, there was a lot there that was very very similar. Um, um, and, and it absolutely made sense to me. You know, one of the one of the things that a byproduct in so many of the studies that I was reading was this idea of self-efficacy as well. And, and you just don't get self-efficacy with heterohypnosis. For people that are listening that, that are not aware of what I mean by self-efficacy, it's just this simple notion that was really sort of um, um, highlighted by Albert Bandura, um, an eminent psychologist, who just began to recognize that when people were more confident in their abilities, those abilities raised. And there was this kind of mm, cycle yeah. whereby the, the, the more you, the more confident you were, the more competent you became, and the more competent you became, the more confident you became. And this kind of cycle of competence and confidence feeding into each other began to, um, and became self-efficacy. And when, even when that was not an aim, even with some of the paediatric applications of self-hypnosis, they began to find that, um, um, that, that self-efficacy was absolutely being raised and people began to feel capable of doing other stuff that wasn't related to this. I mean, as uh, out of interest, um, I'm, I'm in the studies, in some of the studies, they, they, split the con they split the experimental group further than just self-hypnosis. Sometimes they use self-hypnosis plus relaxation other times they use self-hypnosis plus plus imagery and and self-created imagery when yeah. when the imagery was used thus making it a more a more active a more active more of a kind of skill um um the the, the efficacy was always raised you know um, in some of the some of the the experiments that didn't make um, um our review for example some of Griselier's experiments um um, we're asked whether they're raising immune functioning um, within people and people were literally just being asked to imagine sharks swimming through their blood you know and the immune their immune system was was going up well, when they were doing that rather than just using self-hypnosis plus relaxation and uh, you know it's shown that relaxation raises immune functioning anyway but nonetheless the, the active component the 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 using imagery in conjunction with where it's becoming more of an active skill um, and having a cognitive strategy was was typically more effective and 
you know, so this this also began to to sit in well with me. Now, now, you know, this is where my bias started to get to get highlighted within my own work, and where yeah. I started to get scrutinised by the the peer review and and by my by my PhD supervisor Ben Paris. So, so you mean the man that really likes self hypnosis is magically finding that self hypnosis works? Yeah, exactly. But, but, but on top of that, what I what I started finding was that that heck, it's a skill. Heck, I love the sociocognitive perspective, which 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 kind of introduces yeah, thought, hypnosis thought much more as a skill rather than an altered state yeah. of consciousness that's kind of proactive rather than passive. Heck, everything that I love is fitting in together and I've got evidence to support it now. And so I had to start I had to start scrutinizing this. You know, I had to start scrutinizing it and I had to start examining it. And so 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 started to look at um um, you know the dissociation theorists and the dissociated control theorists and the, the you know the, the more recent neuroscientists that are examining and, and wanting hypnosis as to be an altered state um, and to start looking at that and um, and to start saying well what are these guys saying how are they explaining self-hypnosis and, yeah. and and typically they don't typically they don't you know there's there's a few kind of means and methods that they talk about but they've not got an explanation of self-hypnosis and these days you know a number of authors have, have created much more rapprochement between dissociated control and, and dissociation theories and my beloved sociocognitive but um sociocognitive perspectives so do, do, you, do you mean that the, the 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 area of the academics that you would typically refer to as the dissociation theorists yeah. are moving more towards social cognitive kind of models in order to include hypno self-hypnosis yeah yeah kind of yeah you, you know I mean, I mean even jameson and woody you know who 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 looking at um you know th th what they started to maintain was that some level of self-guided control was still possible when hypnotized and thus because this, like you said before it, it kind of destroys the dissociative model if, yeah exactly uh, exactly you know, it, it, and 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 the and I mean, for me, at least, from from the bit I know, I mean, the dissociation models of of which you know there there were a number, and they were they were beaten around by the social cognitive people for a while, but um, you know, beaten down or or, or beaten and bruised. Yeah. But the those models seem to have such strong, um, fundamental kind of, um sort of decisions that are made that that mean that self hypnosis can't really exist. That it's sort of, you know, it's interesting to sort of yeah, see exactly. Far... I, I, you know, I've had I've had arguments on forums with with stage hypnotists that have said, yeah. you know, self hypnosis is not. There's no such thing. You know, you can't do hypnosis by oneself. You know, there's not self hypnosis if you're doing it. It's, it's not hypnosis if you're doing it by itself. You know, I mean, dissociation theorists historically supported the view that responses to suggestions occur non volitionally. Okay, so that, 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 that's the so-called, the, the classic suggestion effect that was developed by Weizenhofer. Um, now, if, so, so if self-hypnosis is self-directed and self-regulated and involves self-suggestion, that requires volition, that requires intention. So the experience of volition or intention ordinarily reflects a kind of control, executive control over one's behaviour. And, and the executive control that dissociation theories of hypnosis claim are bypassed 
or, or minimized. So Spanos was was described, you know, in his in his nineteen seventies wars, you know, um, with where, where Spanos just kind of made it his life's work to destroy Ernest Hilgard. Um, um, Spanos was kind of describing hypnotic behaviour as purposeful and therefore volition, uh, volitional, which would kind of support this conceptualization of self-hypnosis, which, which I was coming up with. And so, you know, we, we, we did really examine and we did really have a good look at what dissociation theorists were saying, what the, the, the more recent dissociated control theorists were saying, and what, you know, Kilstrom was saying, for example, um, recently. But there's still not, you know, and, and so, I mean, there is an argument that even though we experience a response as automatic and non-volitional, that that experience is actually illusory, you know, and that there is some executive control involved in hypnotic responding. Um, and yeah. so even if the hypnotized subject doesn't experience it as such, so they were, you know, perhaps self-hypnosis could fit in with a version of dissociated control theory, but it's not, it's not really that, it's, it's not a strong case. So, so when me and Anthony sat and um, first uh, did the, did, you know, the, the experiment with our, um, automatic imagination, yeah. literally in his, you know, in, in his living room after a, a long journey where we've been discussing the science, yeah, it's all that's documented on on ripped apart. Um, I I was c causing effects in Anthony, uh, such as hallucination and um, and the likes, which he you know hadn't experienced before. Mm. But I was causing effects in myself, such as amnesia and um, like a stuckness, uh, stuckness um, kind of effect, which felt entire it's it's kind of like you um i was oh yeah you know, I, I was i wanted the effect to, i wanted to see what would happen if we went through this process that we thought we had sort of identified and the result was was an effect like my hand was stuck to my cup my cup was stuck to the chair mm. um and i i i don't know whether i could have just kind of gone Oh well, that's just an illusion, and it would have stopped. Maybe, maybe I could have done, but there is something very strong in that moment of not breaking that. And and to, I remember having to click my fingers. I remember having to do something to kind of cause the end of that that thing that was occurring. Mm. Um, so, I mean, I, that work kind of built on or, or, or took ideas from cold control theory. Which was simply, can you could you create that cold control theory kind of idea in your own mind with your own volition, and and I'm, you know, obviously I'd, I'd love to see some work in this area, um, you know, some actual structured scientific work in this area, which I, I'm not in a position to do myself, um, unfortunately, uh, to to question, um, does is that what's going on? Does that actually work? You know, did we <laughs> because yeah. Yes, you can volitionally go into a, into a process and do things and end up with non-volitional um, effects afterwards. Because you, if that's true, you could take that and apply that to so many other areas of hypnosis and kind of say, yes, you know, the people come on the stage voluntarily. They voluntarily entertain the suggestions and and 
engage their imagination uh, with with enthusiasm and, and the right kind of mindsets. And the ramification of that is that they end up doing things which they don't actually feel like they have control over, although arguably at some level they do. I mean, it's, you know, there's a whole web around um, the work of Kirsch, you know, response expectancy and, and the likes, which... Oh, absolutely. Which which needs to inform this, but I still think this is exciting. But within that, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. See, see, within 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 some of those response expectancy, you know, um, um, Kirsch and Lynn would say, you know, back in the late nineties, that it, it, it's not the experienced automaticity of the kind of like idiomotor responses that that's an illusion, but rather the experience of of volition that's that's that is claimed yeah. that yes. kind of ends up characterizing everyday behavior and so on and so 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 you know some people point out of course you know some people will point out that much human behavior is initiated outside of awareness and occurs with little or no conscious kind of deliberation and and, and that that idea you know because heck that, that that's the way that loads of people try and say to me yeah we definitely got an unconscious mind because look we do all this stuff so we do stuff unconsciously i don't contend that we do stuff unconsciously but i do contend that we have a benevolent force that is an unconscious mind that's a discussion for another day i know but so inside lots of people outside of awareness so lots of people say to me yeah that, yeah. that of course much human behavior is initiated outside of awareness and lots of authors have said this and and that occurs with little or no conscious deliberation and so that in itself that, that that's not incompatible with the idea that we can still become aware of what we are doing and be able to consciously regulate and be able to exert considerable control over our actions so mm. so you know there's 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 a lot of there's a lot of interesting points there, and there's a lot of kind of things that that we ended up discussing and and funnily enough um, I'm you know Dien and Perna with their cold control theory and um, um, you know started to offer up a, a really great way of, of bridging and explaining hypnosis from a theoretical perspective um, um, similar to those lines and so I started I started to contend then with our with our ne with our next paper that perhaps self-hypnosis provides us with an opportunity to, to, to advance a similar, Reproachment. That is, that self hypnosis with the kind of proposed mindset adopted could potentially demonstrate expectation as well as non volitional responses to suggestions delivered by oneself and creating an illusion of automaticity. Because I do that. I do that in class, in front of people, when I'm creating yeah. um, when I'm creating arm levitation, that's what I'm doing. I've got the proposed mindset, so I'm doing the skill. And um, I've got the expectation and the belief, um, but the response, I make it feel like it's happening all by itself. And, and heck, I explain it very often using yours and Anthony's AI model language, which has some parallel, some of the languaging um, um, has, been, has been kind of had parallels drawn to the, the some of the cult and skills things whereby you're saying you know imagine the response is happening um but 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 then imagine that you're not imagining it and and so you know getting your head around that idea of just imagining and believing that it's happening non-volitionally you're doing it as a skill 
the belief, the expectation that you're investing is a skill, but you're starting to, to make it feel like it's happening non-volitionally, which therefore is beginning to, to, to kind of draw upon some of the elements of neo-dissociation, for example. So mm. I, and I, I think... And I, and I, I, mean, I don't want to labour it too, too much because obviously we, we have so many other questions to go on to, but that's... One of the one of the one of the other key things. I mean, I would I'd love if um if our automatic imagination model actually got explored properly somewhere along the line. Yeah. But one of the, one of the big changes that um in terms of how we worked that came out of that was no longer giving suggestions, but rather unpacking suggestions into a series of instructions. Um, because people don't always have the mindset to know what to do with a suggestion but everyone knows how to take an instruction especially if that's an instruction to imagine something and and that and that subtle difference i think resonates again with self-hypnosis or self-directed hypnosis it's the difference between saying to yourself um i'm not going to feel any more pain i'm, I'm going to feel pain free I'm, I'm going to feel like i'm not you know like like this my leg isn't hanging off versus mm. I'm going to imagine, you know, imagine these things. Imagine that I, I'm, I'm sat on a beach without any pain, you know. Or imagine that I'm living my life without, without all of this injury or whatever it happens to be, you know. So, yeah. Um, and and I think I think that's that's subtle, but I I think in terms of self-directed hypnosis being the skill and being a recipe and an approach that can be taught and understood by people, versus a mystical thing of like, well, just suggest your, to yourself that this will go away and it will go away. And people sort of go, but it doesn't work for me. I don't know how to do that. The difference between the two can be the difference in, in eff efficacy, for, for example. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Ab absolutely. You know, you, you, you've nailed it there. You know, um, um, so, so pretty much the, the kind of conclusion that we start to, that we started to draw. I and mean, when I keep referring to we, I talk about uh, I'm talking about myself and Ben Paris, the Dr. Ben Paris. Um, um, I've kind of, you know, ended up with you know, discussing its kind of theoretical importance, attempting to define what it is, and talk about methodological differences and the relationship with hetero hypnosis, what comes first, and so on. And started to suggest that actually self hypnosis is the precursor. Self hypnosis ought to be what comes first. That it's best taught. As a self-directed, self-regulated skill that can be improved upon, um, um, similar to skill learning in any context, you know. And I refer to, and the, the analogy that we use is considering how a gymnast learns to perform their manoeuvres. You know, they watch how the move is carried out. Um, they're then taught how to best complete the manoeuvre for herself or himself perhaps in a series of stages and and likely with justification given for those specific practices and then thirdly they then practice diligently and perform independently of anybody else mm. and in the context of hypnosis um, an individual might watch a demonstration of hypnosis or have it modeled by an individual um, um, or, you know, doing self-hypnosis. The individual is then educated about self-hypnosis, taught how to adopt the correct mindset that's required. And typically I'm talking about being motivated to be hypnotized, confident in one's ability, optimistic about the process, expecting to respond automatically to suggestions that you give oneself, um, and, and are also instructed on the practical skills required. 
And then they adopt the role of self-hypnotist and perform the process independently and without any external guidance um, and, and investing belief in the process. And then by practicing repeatedly, developing proficiency and self-efficacy, it begins to it begins to develop. And, yeah. and that, that, that's kind of where that's kind of where, where, where we end up with that with that second paper and and the kind of theoretical discussions been been supported with the previous paper which shows the reviews and and shows the, the effectiveness um, um, of, of self-hypnosis and so on and the evidence to support this this protocol you know so it's a, it's a research informed protocol and so next comes us us testing it excellent um and you're so actually to, you're actually going to get people in a room yeah uh, exactly well i mean we've started we've started already so oh. um we're starting our our uh, well, we've started our our initial experiment which has been developed and changed quite a bit but ben paris is um probably after amir raz is probably the most prolific researcher of hypnosis and stroop so okay. It kind of made sense for us to test this, this based upon his um, his experience and expertise with Stroop, and the Stroop task, and um, um, and and to 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 use and, and see if we could apply self hypnosis um, with 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 the Stroop task. For people that don't know, um, the Stroop task is um, whereby. Uh, you're shown words up on a computer screen and you are tasked with pressing a button to, that corresponds with the colour. So you have to identify what the colour of the word is. The problem is uh, it's easy to do if the word says blue and the colour is blue, if the word says red and the colour is red. But if the word says black and the colour is red, while you're reading black, it creates a delay and it creates... Um, um, some kind of dissonance in your brain within the anterior cingulate cortex, apparently, and um, and it slows down your response. And that, that slowing of the response is called the Stroop effect. Um, and, and the reason it's so important to the field of hypnosis is because Amir Raz showed that the Stroop effect could be inhibited um, with the use of hypnosis, heterohypnosis, being, and giving suggestions for word blindness, and um, and and notably, uh, also with the just giving of suggestions in a hypnotic context, but without an induction. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Which is often which is often missed. So I've often seen the first uh, Raz paper being uh, mentioned. I think two thousand five, and they refer to hypnosis can reduce the Stroop effect which you know can't often be reduced in in many other different psychological techniques but um and I, and I point out that hypnosis might be an illusion or might be the result of a suggestion you could actually do it just with suggestions as he showed in 2006 and i think and um yeah that that distinction i think you know again lends itself towards um you know a cognitive model a skill-based model a self-directed model yeah um, well, absolutely, and um, and so what, what what we're in the process of doing, and we've had to we've had to kind of change it a couple of times and and resume um, because one of the challenges we have is um, 
um, with with so that we're comparing self hypnosis with hetero hypnosis and control. Um, I mean, it's just um, um, expectation levels and things. We're trying to we're trying to eliminate as many variables as we possibly can. And 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 how do you deliver the self hypnosis? Because we 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 know that when you say to when you use Raz's when you use the the suggestions that Raz uses it's going to inhibit the stroop effect but but we can't exactly spoon feed those same instructions those same suggestions to the self-hypnosis group because that that ultimately is because is almost playing the part of hetero hypnosis we can't say to them say this to yourself because mm. if we say to someone say this to yourself it's like i'm saying it to them so we had to work out ways in which they would deliver it. And, and we didn't want to spoon feed them the suggestion because we wanted it to be self-suggestion. So what we've had to do is work out ways in which we can give people ideas of strategies to use and then create, be, be self-directed with it. So that, that took a little bit of time. Um, and the results for that are going to be really in interesting and they're going to be really important. Not just because it's the first time self-hypnosis has been used in this way, um, and, but it's going to validate that self-hypnosis is a thing. It's going to validate, it's going to show that self-hypnosis exists. It is, um, it is, because there aren't many other ways of, of inhibiting the Stroop effect, especially self-directed. No, exactly, exactly. And, 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 you know, it's going to kind of put self-hypnosis, make self-hypnosis more important to the field. Um, so, you know, and, and that's going to be important for us. Um, um, and so, yeah, you know, that, that's that's that what comes next. And, yes, you know, that, that will see that will see the, the completion of my PhD. Um, you know, we'll, we'll kind of, you know, put, disseminate the results and, and have that peer reviewed and so on. And, and it's going to be a series of, of other papers and other things that we do within that. Um, so, yeah, that, 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 that kind that, of. That sounds very exciting and, and, uh, and a worthwhile thing to be researching and, and, and something that quite possibly will be entirely successful as well. Um, yeah. So, no. You know, not... I, I, I hope it is. I hope it is. But, you know, what, th here's another thing. This is another interesting learning for me because, um, you know, Ben Ben Paris, my, my, my PhD supervisor, I've mentioned loads, um, I mean, he says to me, you know, you know, you've got to detach yourself from that outcome, from wanting that outcome, because oh, if no, it's absolutely. not, if it's yeah. not, if it's not successful, or if it, if it, if if it, if self hypnosis is not, then then you still get to report that, you know, and and reporting it, and and you're still making a contribution to knowledge, regardless of whether it's, and and we're still contributing to the knowledge about self hypnosis, regardless of whether we can prove this thing to be true or not, or regardless of whether it can inhibit the Stroop effect or not. And if it can't, then we, you know, we, we examine it and we use that data that it produces to, to see what we can learn. And, was, you know, I, I, I desperately want it to, to have that outcome because, <laughs> because I want it to have the outcome that I want. Um, we're having to now video all the sessions that I conduct in the laboratory to make sure that I'm not being more enthusiastic with the self-hypnosis guys yeah. and, yes. you know, purposely putting a downer on the hetero-hypnosis guys. Yeah, no, indeed. I mean, as, as I said to you when we um, met recently, um, you know, academic research is about asking good questions, not yeah. necessarily about finding good answers. Exactly. Exactly that. Yeah, right. it is. 
It is. And, you know, and not looking always, always trying to have um, the outcomes that you're after, but just looking to, 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 to accept what the outcome is. So with that in mind, I'm yeah. going to ask you some good questions. Yeah, cool. Hopefully. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, what the, one of the things that I really wanted to uh, ask you. So, um, yeah, we we got to know each other in um, I don't know, 20, 2010, 2011, something along those lines. I remember yeah. you um, coming along to Change Phenomena. Um, um, and, you know, when you meet someone who's already established in the industry, um, you don't always find out where they came from and, and how they got there. Um, I'm I'm always interested in asking people those questions if I if I get the you know the right opportunities and and I feel like this is the opportunity. What I want to know is when you were first trained or you first read things to uh, about hypnosis and hypnotherapy, what kind of models of hypnosis were you were you learning? Where 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 were where were you at in terms of um, yeah, so- what hypnosis is where it goes? And and how's that sort of changing, or how how did that change? When did it change? I well, I think um, I was I was trained as many many frontline hypnotherapists are still trained today, um, which 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 has become a bit of a a bit of a thing that 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 I'm working working to change within the field. But I was absolutely taught that hypnosis was you know a way of communicating with the unconscious mind, that unconscious mind was a benevolent force. Um, that hypnosis was an altered state of consciousness. It was a it was a trance state. And that, that that was it. And it was just a singular model. And I was heavily invested in that model. So is um, it and, and to the point where I wrote a book about it. <laughs> yes, of course. Yeah, you know, I wrote a book based upon that model, based upon my understanding of it, which, you know, the day after the day after that book was published was the day that things started changing for me, if I'm honest, because it was then, it was then that I started getting, because it, because it was so well marketed, that book, you know, I did a massive, um, I did a, with, with, with the help of some, with the help of big internet marketers and hypnosis and persuasion gurus in the US, um, Kevin Hogan in particular, um, a good friend of mine and a mentor of mine when I was in the early stages of my career. Um, um, the book sold massively. Um, still today, it's my best-selling book by a mile. And um, um, so it, it flew up the charts at Amazon. And because so many people were exposed to it and so many people read it, also the number of dissenting perspectives about the book were, were out there. And, and, you know, within 24 hours of it being number one at Amazon, I was getting... Um, people saying, you know, you, you do realise there's not such a thing as an unconscious mind, don't you? In the way in which you're explaining it, anyway. Um, <laughs> and was sending me quotes from William James, uh, the one which I go on about all the time, where he refers to the field of, um, uh, or the, the field of, you know, the, the, the notion of an unconscious mind turning the field of psychology into a tumbling ground of whimsies. <laughs> yes. um, and and you know, and I, and I remember feeling really hurt and upset about this, and then spending ages and ages desperately looking for information that would support you know you know and to prove these people wrong and i couldn't find it i could not find it couldn't find it anywhere and interestingly what i found when i searched the academic literature was you can't even find people discussing dissociation models 
in the terms of anything that's taught in popular hypnotherapy trainings. So no, the Ericksonian no. or Neo Ericksonian NLP, Elman-esque, um, stage hypnosis, etc. The things that are being the words they're using, the terms, the approaches, the the, the beliefs just don't even appear. Mm. You know, just, they're just not there at all. Even though people are coming from a side Exactly. Uh, they're not, it's, it's not even mentioned. The, the way yeah. that, the, I mean, it, you know, if you look at Hilgard and um, if you look at some of the recent ways in which dissociation is discussed, um, because dissociation ultimately is what people are being taught, frontline hypnotherapy, the vast majority, you know, with it being an altered state of consciousness and um, and so on, you know, typically it's it's dissociation that they're being taught. But even dissociation, the way it's taught, exactly as you said, the way it's ta- the way it's explained academically, and amongst the dissociation theorists, it's massively different to the kind of way in which it's been transformed and rather butchered by the the, the, the frontline teaching of hypnotherapy that within the hypnotherapy field, and it's kind of regurgitated and spewed out um, 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 within the field to a point where I mean and and. and you know, I didn't mean to use the word spew there, but 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 but, 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 but it's really relevant because it does make me feel sick sometimes when I see the amount of use that that people are kind of so heavily invested in, and, and I was invested. I was invested. You know, I, I did what a lot of people do, and that is, I paid you know a couple of grand and a bit to go to go and train. So I was invested financially. I was invested in that trainer. It was a person that I loved as a as a human being. I thought he was a lovely man. I really enjoyed him um, um, as as a person, and I and I became good friends with him. You know, I, I wrote a book about this. Um, I started to become a moderately popular therapist, um, um, and so on. And so I was massively invested in this, and um, um, but, but and and that's what that's what I find so so disappointing these days because. Um, I'm, I, to, to see this the, over the past 20 years. And um, um, if you actually look at frontline hypnotherapy field in the last 50 years, it's just not changed. It's not developed. It's still happening. But I, th- it's I, like... think, I think you can explain that to some degree with the um, consistency and commitment um, or commitment and consistency principle that Caldini refers to. Oh, so Absolutely. Because- like you say, you've bought into that. If five years after buying into something and, and telling a thousand people quite confidently that this is the case, mm. um, somebody kind of redirects your attention towards some evidence that says this this probably isn't the case and it's probably all nonsense and and you don't actually understand how hypnosis is working anyway. You're just you're just regurgitating a process. Um, it's hard to step down. Because it means you're not and you're not just changing your mind over over a theory. You're you're having to admit that all the things you've been saying to your clients for for many years was was quite possibly nonsense. And on top of that, if that if what you were saying was nonsense, was what you were doing nonsense? Yeah, well, you know, yeah. It, I mean, and, and how was it working, and how was it? Because you know, I, I, exactly. I was, it, might not, it might not matter, but it might matter. You know. <laughs> so. Well, this is exactly it. You know, one of the things that I mentioned, one of the things that I mentioned in my lecture at the UK Hypnosis Convention this year, um, was that um, um, was, was that you know I was talking about placebo, and I was saying that there was so much 
so much that is placebo. Um, I'm involved in hypnosis and involved in, in, in all therapies, you know, because all therapies are shown to be effective in some way. And, um, you know, pretty much. And um, but there was a lot of kind of placebo elements and extra therapeutic elements that were contributing to the effect of the therapy and a lot of things that can be harnessed by understanding how placebo works and so on. And that, you know, that a lot of people say, well, you know, this is all acad academic. And, and one of the one of the things that I get that I get thrown at me often um, is, well, you know, as long as it works, Adam, as long as it works, why does it matter? Why do, why do you have to try and understand it like you were doing? Why do you have to try and tell everybody? Why do you have to try and educate the field in the, the incessant manner that you do? And so I dug out this, this excellent um, paper from the 1960s um, that showed that hundreds of thousands of people throughout history have been helped by stuff such as bloodletting, mm. such as crocodile dung. Um, crocodile dung was used um, as a contraceptive for, for, for years and years and years. Can't even um, imagine how that works. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, um, but but the, the amount of different things that have been used, and, and, you know, and, and at some level they worked. But the point is, you know, if we have just said, well, it doesn't matter as long as it works, then we'd still be using crocodile dung today and, and so on. But the, 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 points, the, the points that I'm wanting to make with regard to that is that by understanding it, by understanding how it works, what is making it effective, you get to refine it, you get to move on, you get to develop and, and you, know, you, you get to make it safer and, and better and you get to, to understand it and, um, and more people have access to it. And it's, and it's not reliant upon um, you, you know, a, a lot of intangible variables yeah i mean I, the, the, I mean my my simple answer to that is firstly how do you know what works unless you um unless somebody studies it from an academic perspective with randomized controlled trials um and and then you build your work on on the results of those but secondly no one ever said you know says to the the people designing aircraft engines and aircraft wings or car brakes or electrical um, you know, systems that go into your house, you know, the way your kettle goes together. But why do you care where, how it, why it works? You know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, we all expect those people to have studied why it works in order that they can design things that are safe. You know, in, in the ever, yeah, we, I mean, within engineering, constantly people want to make things cheaper so they're moving to what's the least amount of resources you can put into a thing and have it still function um and and arguably with with therapy you know you could be in therapy for three years you might only be in therapy for 10 weeks um it's cheaper for the client and probably healthier for the client if it, if if you can get the work done quicker so their problems are, are resolved sooner um so if we're moving towards trying to re reduce the resources, you can only do that if you know whether what you're doing still works. And yeah. with aircraft, they have all mighty amounts of maths and, and uh, science that they will throw at that in order to find out if that's the case. You know, like if you buy a kettle in curries and it's, you know, five pounds. Oh, actually, curries is probably a bad, a bad example. Tesco's, maybe. You buy a kettle in Tesco's and it's five pounds. You still kind of want to believe it will do the job of boiling water without killing you. Yeah, yeah, well, exactly, 
exactly. you couldn't you couldn't ever ex, um, sort of randomly come to those conclusions if nobody had a clue of the physics of electricity you know mm. so I, I think the you know the that, that that's what but, we, but, you know, the, we the, this is my point you know what am I hypnosis you know? exactly you know, the, 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 this is this is a really important point because um um you know if, if you look at how much engineering and technology and communication has developed in the last 50 years you know, it's massive it's unrecognizable from itself yet if you look at the field of hypnosis and, and frontline hypnotherapy um, where we're, we're, we're idolizing people and methods and approaches and models that that were that were prominent in the 50s and 60s and so on um, and refusing to budge or change or develop um, from those that you know it's it, it's held us back massively you know to the I, point where lots of the, the, you know the, the two probably the two most popular um, um, approaches in frontline hypnotherapy um, are, are probably the two least researched um, um, you know when we when we look at Elman and Ericsson you know, and everybody's talking about which ones you prefer and so on, that really, really you ought not prefer either because <laughs> actually they've made very, very little contribution. I, I mean, the, 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 probably more so with Ericsson because, um, um, you know, the, there are the likes of the, the Ericsson Foundation and Stephen Langton and Jeffrey Zieg who, who do make that approach. And, and, and he was, Ericsson was, was a, a major therapist in other areas other than hypnosis as well. Um, so there, there are certain elements of what he does that, has, that, that, that have a good evidence base. But, you know, Elman doesn't appear. He just doesn't appear. And, and yet his, his approach is idolised. Now, I, this is not me poo-pooing Ericsson or poo-pooing um, um, Elman. It's just me saying that, that we also do need to build upon that and we need to grow out of it. Um, yeah, totally. I, I also like to point out to people... Um, that uh, Clark Hull, who um, actually taught Ericsson hypnosis, yeah. um, in a university setting, I might add, people yeah. seem to gloss over the fact that Ericsson was an academic, um, changed the face of psychology research away from single case study um, examinations like such as Sigmund Freud would have done, yeah, exactly. and into systematic trials using statistics and maths to work out what is more likely to be something that would work for a population. And you know, if, if people want to build their, their knowledge and build their belief systems on top of Ericsson, I think that they need to look at Clark Hull and build it upon Ericsson's teacher and accept that we should be looking towards things that can be tested systematically, not things that are um, a hero or, or guru-focused. Um, you know, the, the, the entire church of NLP... Um, shuns um, the idea of science, I mean, in, you know, not just yeah. from Bandler and Grinder, but it, it's filtered throughout their entire um, congregation of, of, of blind worshippers that that's, it can't be tested scientifically. And it's like, no, no, no. In the 30s, Clark Hull was testing things scientifically in this area. Yeah. But it's, but, I mean, you know, he, he recognised that yeah, there were challenges yeah. with it. He recognised that there were challenges with it, but had a really good go, and um, and and you know absolutely. I think um, um, you know. I mean, I, I've written one of my most one of my most popular videos on my YouTube channel, 
um, which which means that you know, like about nine people have watched that one. Um, <laughs> uh, one of my most popular videos um, um, is is where I speak about the the cult of anti intellectualism um, in the field yeah. of hypnotherapy. Yeah. yeah. It's a, it's, a, it's a brilliant one. So we should move on. I wanted to ask you, actually, this is a really good segue. I wanted to ask you what you thought was happening in the head of a subject when they were, when they've been inducted into hypnosis. I mean, that could be, I mean, self-directed might, might, might be uh, more complicated. I know on your, the way you teach self-hypnosis on your um, single day workshops that they're, they're, it feels like an induction. It feels like, um, some a uh, some shift in the mind of some description and certainly as you can see with heterohypnosis um when you look at how people do hypnosis clearly inductions feature heavily and and um i've heard you yourself um still champion uh, inductions to some degree what do you think yeah. is so, I, I, I definitely do not think that the induction has any kind of mechanical effect. I, d I definitely do not think that the role of induction is cause effect, that because the, the, the induction is happening, therefore that causes hypnosis to happen. For me, the usefulness of induction is that it, it, it corrals, it marshals the mindset and, and brings the focus together and brings things together, albeit in a rather ritualistic fashion. And, and that, uh, people are, f are very, very capable of doing that without an induction. But so for me, the, the hypnosis, the mindset that's being adopted is happening just before the induction, but the induction kind of magnifies it, corrals it and marshals all the different um, um, sort of modulating factors that contribute to, to the hypnosis. Now, I, I, I absolutely understand that inductions I do not think are necessary. Um, I'm, I'm divided. I'm divided on whether I think they're important, um, because even even the, the academics that have contributed to and shown that actually the induction does very little. You know, it does very little over and beyond you know raising suggestibility a negligible amount. Mm. Those those researchers still used the induction. You know, Kirsch, Barber. Clark Hull, you know, you look at transcripts, you look at their work, they still used them. And I think, therefore, that, that they become important, even though they are not necessary, because of the expectation they create, because of the way in which they can corral the, the, the various different component parts, because of the way in which they can move focus in. Now, if you're using phenomena, hypnotic phenomena, um, um, for, for example, that, that, that in and of itself can become and do the same role as an induction because you're adopting a very particular mindset, you're engaging your imagination, you're focusing, you're having expectation, you're appropriately motivated to make that thing happen. So I think, I think it, it, it kind of does, it, it does, it does those things. And so I think that, um, um, you know, I, I, I don't think they're necessary. I don't think they need to happen. Um, I mean, you just need to watch Martin S. Taylor's stage show to know you don't need a bit, you know, a formal induction. But a stage environment, you know, he, Martin himself, um, 
says that there is a certain amount of compliance, a certain amount of compliance that you specifically do not want to occur in a therapeutic environment, for example, and a, and a certain level of compliance that, that he will use um, and a certain, uh, you know, a certain uh, amount of the environment that he will use purposely to his gain that actually you want to remove in the therapeutic environment and you want to remove from the research environment. So for me, it kind of, even though they're not necessary for for the effects necessarily and have been proven that, I think they are important. Um, I think in some ways they are effective. Um, in some ways they are effective. And I think, you know, in a therapeutic environment where, where there is a certain degree of expectation, it makes absolute sense to use them. I like using them. Um, um, Within a, within a self-directed fashion, I think you can you can get to the point where you probably don't need to use them. Um, in fact, the vast majority of my clients these days, you know, because I teach them self-hypnosis even before they come to my sessions, very often I'm inclined to say, you know, close your eyes and put yourself into hypnosis, um, rather than me do the induction process on occasions. And, but, and, but what, what would into hypnosis mean in that well, context? Well, yeah, yeah, probably into hypnosis is probably the wrong term. Do um, hypnotize. Yeah, 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 do hypno hypnotize yourself. Um, do um, yeah, engage in the process of hypnosis. Yeah, <laughs> yeah sounds a bit odd. Yeah, no, I, I completely understand um, um, as well. You know, I, 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 I do say go into hypnosis, even though I know hypnosis is not... Um, um, or, or rather, at least even though I'm conceptualizing hypnosis in terms of it not being a state, you know, it's not a blancmange that you're diving into. Um, well, one of the things I'm excited about, about the way, uh, about some of the things you've been talking about recently, um, is that I can envisage at some point a hypnotherapist, although that might not be the term they end up using, having a session, a first session where a person comes in, they sit down and they have a, have a, a normal you know, pre-talk kind of conversation that you'd kind of expect about you know, what what do they want to achieve and um, how, how does this thing manifest etc cetera, etc cetera, in order to understand the problem and then the point where at the moment a hypnotherapist would be like right okay then now I'm going to do the hypnosis bit and they close their eyes in some form of of theatrical uh, you know mysticism and then the hypnotherapist is talking at them for the next 45 minutes and then they wake them up at the end and they pay them and go home. And that all yeah, changes. They kind of wipe the dribble from the side of their mouth. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And that all changes in the, in the new thing where they, where they get to that point where they would do that and they sort of say, right, now I'm going to teach you how to do self you know, give yourself suggestions in a self-directed manner. And that becomes a conversation with the other person awake and engaged and talking in, in a two-way kind of um you know the, the hypnotherapist saying you know you need to be thinking about a b and c and maybe doing things in a def kind of way and the person kind of going okay i'll get a and b but i don't really understand c can you help me understand that better and, yeah and, it, and it's a conversation which ends with them saying okay and now you can do that thing and they sit there and they're going to go so i just i can just close my eyes and oh yeah i can do that well, you, know, you know you've just you've basically kev you have just ruined my grand finale you've, <laughs> ruined, you've ruined my grand finale and i don't just mean in this conversation that you and i are having for the podcast i also mean within my phd and and what i'm going to be using it for afterwards because for me i think there's a really strong case 
Um, and, and uh, you know, people are going to really dislike me saying this. I know it. There's a really good case for a hypnotherapist, you know, not necessarily being someone who just delivers heterohypnosis in that way. And that actually, that actually they become, um, they become a kind of therapeutic educator who teaches self-directed set of skills and builds self-efficacy um, and teaches them how to do the self-hypnosis themselves and then combine it with evidence-based therapeutic interventions that, that can be, that have been proven to be effective mm -hmm. as well. Um, and that, that ultimately that's what you're doing. And, you know, I use this term very often on, um, on, on, on my one day seminars where I say, you know, and, and on my diploma courses where I'm saying to people, what you're doing is you're educating and coaching your clients to be a good hypnotic subject. And I think I, I want to not, I want to, ultimately get to the place where we nudge that upper level and say that you know you're coaching them to be you know self-reliance and, and, and use self-directed self-regulated hypnosis and not being dependent upon me to deliver the hypnosis at all so i i um in in most of the times when i've been talking about this this subject um certainly since 2011 i've been Whenever I feel myself using the word hypnosis or hip, uh, hypnotic in any kind of capacity, I, I'm, I'm training myself to stop and replace that with suggestions in some form or other. And obviously the sentence has to change structure in order to make that. But it becomes self-direct, giving, giving yourself suggestions in a self-directed manner as opposed to self-hypnosis. It yeah. becomes delivering suggestions in a hypnotic context as opposed to doing hypnosis yeah because because i find the well, more i mean, yeah, I mean you, 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 you're, you're, you're i mean this is a cooler yeah sorry i'm interrupting yeah so the, the hypnosis thing becomes this empty bag without anything really in it um I, you know I, I i like to unpack that a little bit and and uh talk more in terms of what i'm trying to do or what i'm teaching or or, or what i've seen someone um doing yeah, so Martin Taylor on stage delivers suggestions, um, potentially in a hypnotic context, you know, but also potentially yeah. in a, a psychological control con uh, context or, or a, a one of an enhanced expectation kind of context, whatever it happens to be. Um, so I would talk about hypnotherapist in terms of delivering suggestions within, you know, a certain kind of context or whatever. And every time I kind of find myself saying hypnosis, I'm kind of going, no, no, no. You're talking about the empty bag again. You need to, you need to, you know, unpack that and talk a bit more. Well, that you know, quickly. I think this is really interesting. You know, neuroscientists have, you know, when they're examining what's going on in the brain with regards to hypnosis, they they have to look at neutral hypnosis. So they look at hypnosis plus suggestion, hypnosis without suggestion, suggestion plus hypnosis and suggestion without hypnosis for example and, and so they have this kind of grid and what they call neutral hypnosis is where there's an induction process without without suggestions um gone afterwards and and really that they can't find you know it's a bit of a non-entity um um that yeah. is it's a bit of a non-entity and you know not much goes on in the brain not much you know it's not got much benefit it doesn't do a great deal and so on and so um, um, but, and that starts to what, what, what I was I was getting excited when you were speaking. And that's the reason that I was kind of trying, yeah. to, trying to butt in because, um, 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 you know, th 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 this is what this is what Kuwait did. 
Kuei, you know, in the 1920s was rejecting heterohypnosis and rejecting hypnosis, you know, it, it, even though I've suggested that that um, auto-suggestion and Kuei's work is a precursor, a historical precursor to self-hypnosis as we know it today, he never referred to it as self-hypnosis and rejected heterohypnosis because... Um, because he felt that, you know, the control and everything else existed within the individual. But, you know, his, his approach was always, you know, learn how to deliver suggestions effectively to yourself. Yeah. Um, um, you know, with, with a set of laws and do it, in a, you know, with, without the effort error and, and a whole bunch of stuff to really just make it palatable and make suggestions stick when you say them to yourself. I think this is this. I mean, this this is what makes me quite excited about where your PhD quite quite possibly is going. Is that this could be a a a much better um, way of delivering therapy um, in the future, and 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 hopefully it will have impact, and people will take this on board. I as as you know, as someone who's never been a hypnotherapist uh, but has been a hypnotist, um, I prefer therapy models where the, the client and the and the therapist are talking and communicating in, in a two directional kind of way, bi-directional yeah. kind of way, because you know the, 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 if a um, if if the hypnotherapist is talking at someone for forty five minutes and two minutes in the client's kind of going, this doesn't make sense, none of this makes sense, but I better carry on just sitting here with my eyes closed because you know maybe it'll work or whatever, and and they're not doing naturally doing the things that they need to be doing possibly because they haven't been told how to respond or taught skills to use in that setting um then the the, the chances of it working are quite low and um and, and whereas if they had their eyes open and they could communicate sort of about things they're more likely to say i don't really understand what you mean by that what 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 do you exactly. want me to and you can and you can test it and you can do trial and error trial and error is used in used in cbt it's used in you know you know lots of other yeah. approaches of things you know where you you practice something then you then you work out what, what what you know so even if even if for example you know we take sticking a pen to your hand as as hypnotic phenomena you know and and you, you you teach and you show and the guide then practices it and the pen drops for whatever reason you then have a discussion well what were you doing in your mind there what was the process how was it what was happening and you get to discuss it and then you practice and you reapply it and you get to do you know reflective practice um and and experiential learning um at the same time and you get to develop what you are doing and 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 so on and to me that just that just makes a huge amount of sense for it to be have much more of an ongoing dialogue even now when i'm using heterohypnosis it's it's a lot of little sessions in and out feeding back what you know um, um and developing rather than this kind of one one 20 minute 30 minute session with whale music on crochet blanket and a hush fm dj voice you know um, um rather than all of that and and you know i love the idea you know that, that you mentioned there of it of it not just being this kind of one way you know you you're a you are something that i'm just delivering suggestions at too or as yeah. is often the case you know i'm that i'm reading a script at um which is it which, kind of the difference between physiotherapy and surgery you know yeah. 
So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm there, not there, sure if that's a good metaphor. But, <laughs> but, but I, I mean, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, but but this this idea with um, of of you know not being passive, not being a passive recipient, um, not having to be zonked out, and actually being engaged, I think it gives a good lesson. Um, you know that 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 you don't just turn up and sit there and zonk out and let let it happen to you. Actually, you learn how to do something that is massively enabling. Well, yeah, yeah. Funny enough, you mentioned that. So, um, I, um, in in my normal life of working in in other fields, I often, yeah, it often gets known that I'm a hypnotist because people mention it. I've got a badge that says it, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah. And I often hear about um, people who have been to hypnotherapy at some point. You know, but they're not involved in the hypnosis industry in any in any way. And I say, oh, how? What was it like? You know, what do they do? How did it work? You know, what did it cost? Did it? Did you know? Was it effective? You know, et cetera, et cetera. I'm just I'm just generally interested. And if I was to do a a meta a generalization of all the responses that I I've ever really heard, the vast majority of them go along the lines of. Um, I found them in the back of the paper. Well, nowadays it'd be, you know, I found them online, I guess. Um, I went along and they they told me a whole load of stuff which I wasn't really sure, you know, magic stuff. I wasn't really sure if it was going to be real or not. I, I sat in the chair. Um, sometimes, you know, they say with my eyes closed, I could hear everything. I was thinking this is nonsense. Or other times they say, oh, I sat in the chair, I was completely zonked out. Um, and then afterwards, they pay them, they go home, and two weeks later, their problem resurfaces. You know, whether it's they're smoking or they've got fear of something or whatever it happens to be. And I say to them, and what did you do? Did you go back, you know, to, to have another conversation with, you know, but with the therapist? And they say, well, no, because clearly it didn't work. So why would I go back? But you see, th- 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 you said something really important there. Um, clearly it didn't work you know you see it's it, it like, like, like the responsibility for the change is on it it didn't work yeah um, um, like the responsibility like, like this is somehow an injection or a tablet that you took or something like that that you just kind of put you know passively well, expected to happen and, and on the rare occasions that, that that someone wakes up two weeks later and 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 there there has been a success and there has been a change it's not necessarily because of the hypnosis. It's because of something else, you know. P- probably, most likely, expectation, and and placebo. You know, a whole range of different elements as far as placebo is concerned. But um, um, you know, the, the the that whole thing just just baffles me. Yeah. You know, uh, it absolutely baffles me. This 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 entire you know idea of 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 the way in which hypnosis is used and developed. Um, as being this kind of passive type of notion. Well, that, well that's, um, if, if hypnotherapy needs an industry body, um, or if it needs, you know, like a marketing board, then the the number one thing that should be on that list is 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 the the client has to do things, and 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 it's absolutely, it's, not absolutely. it's not a pill, you know. Well, I mean, you know, with with, with all my clients. Um, um, I ask them to sign when they're sign, signing um, um, to say that, you know, the information they've given me is correct to the best of their knowledge and so on. I get them to sign um, a, a section at the bottom that also says, you know, I understand that success of this therapy is 
is is is is also dependent upon my own application within it. Yeah. Um, you know, i.e. that this is a collaborative process and something you know, that, that that you are an active agent in it, and it's not just this kind of passive, zonked out stuff. So um, that kind of leads me on to um, an, another thing that's been in my mind that I've been thinking about. Yeah. And um, and that's something that um, something that Irving uh, Kirsch said um, uh, a while back. Um, I can't remember what capacity he said it, but he kind of suggested that hypnotherapists should have some kind of standardized or regulated training in counseling and in ethics. And and it wasn't and he, he wasn't trying to say all of these hypnotherapists were bad people and and not very good counselors and um and potentially were were doing things that were um, wrong in any kind of malicious sense. What he was trying to say was, was how, how, do, how do you know as a hypnotherapist that, that, you're, that you're doing the right things, that you're, that you're good and that you're not doing any damage? And how do clients or potential clients know that when they go to see a random hypnotherapist, you know, and they're not friends with hypnotherapists, so it's not like, they know that John is a good one and, and, and whatever, you know, how do they know that they're getting some kind of quality, um, some kind of care? Um, and, and part of the reason why he was saying that was that he said that hypnotherapy will always struggle um, in this country, if not elsewhere, to gain um, any kind of, sort of professional standing within the medical community unless it has these things. So. I was just wondering, since you, you know you know Irving well, um, I was wondering where you where you sort of stand on that. What what your thoughts are? Yeah, well, you know, I mean, one of the other things that I mean, Irving says, um, just just in addition to that, um, is that you know hypnotherapists ought not be a standalone profession. You know that, that hypnosis should not be necessarily be used therapeutically um, or medically unless you have training in in in, in the the other therapy. Um, first and foremost, and then that hypnosis becomes adjunctive. So, yeah. um, um, you know, and, and typically he, he does tend to ostracize um, or he does tend to polarize opinion a little bit um, and with regards to that. But there's there's a lot of there's a lot of sense in there. Um, and there's, there's there's potentially a couple of things that, that, that I might not agree with in there. Um, but with regards to, you know, regulated training as far as counseling and ethics is concerned, you know, really there's there's I mean, there's about as standardized as as the field gets there's a couple of qualifications that are um externally assessed that include certain bits of information and knowledge about ethics so you know the hpd qualification in the uk you know has has modules and sections on ethics and and on counseling skills that you know people have to know and and be able to apply the, the, the trouble comes when um, people are teaching hypnotherapy diplomas in like five days or seven days or something like that, or, or <laughs> as, as one day on an NLP course um, that's, you know, six days of other stuff um, and, and get nothing of the sort. They get nothing of the sort. They get, they get no context by which hypnosis and hypnotherapy is being used and so on. I think, I think, 
there is some of that out there and there is you know certainly on my own diploma courses there are certain core core ethics ethics discussions and 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 understanding that people have to know and apply certainly there are certain core counseling skills with regards to certain soft skills in particular that people have to apply and and be aware of in order to pass their qualification you know some of the specific learning outcomes but um i know for a fact that there are many 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 training courses and training companies out there that are not teaching this um and 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 where where, where there's no standardization um and there's no kind of there's no adherence to any of the national occupational standards now the national occupational standards for for hypnotherapy are not are not not satisfactory as far as i'm concerned they're not exhaustive and there's certainly nothing compared to what, what other professions have to do um but but they're but there's something and you know there's a lot of training out there in the uk that doesn't adhere to it um and so you know i i think it's good i think it's important for us to have especially if we want credibility um but it, it's missing you know there's a lot of that missing maybe it would be a good topic for somebody to talk about at the at next year's uk hypnosis convention um yeah or, absolutely um because because it 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 would provide potentially a platform where uh, you know certainly a, a large section of the industry kind of come together and, and get exposed to ideas i mean obviously you've just taken over um yeah and and congratulations i mean i i'd also like to say, i'd like to say congratulations to nick um for all of the work that he's done um over the last 3 years on on it it, it must having run a conference myself with anthony i know just how hard um it is and we literally did one day with no gala dinner <laughs> six five speakers well i always used to go to the pub after a change phenomena so you know that that, that felt like a gala had, dinner to me yeah we had gala pub exactly yeah we had gala pub we used to hang and, out at, i used to love that yeah, yeah and if, if you were around the night before sometimes we had gala pre-pub um <laughs> yeah um but you know, but obviously, what Nick's had to do is 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 vastly more work, and uh, and I, I did I, I chatted with Nick at um, the at the convention, and and he said he, it was it was just so much work. Um, yeah. He had so many other things going on in his life. He had, he had to let something move on, and this was the one uh, he wanted to let move on, not willingly, but this was the one he had to choose, or what he decided to choose. Yeah. But you've taken this on, so you have this. Yeah wonderful platform or wonderful event but also with the poison chalice of the uh, volume of work that this could potentially be bringing yeah um well, I'm, well, I'm, yeah, I mean, just on that particular note you know when when i was discussing it with nick um because you know he, he he was kind of just just voicing some of those some of those challenges that he was having and when i was discussing it with him um i knew that i didn't want to do what he was doing um because I just I, I, and what's more, I'm not capable. And also the other thing is that Nick was Nick was neutral, and you know he he, he, um, um, he won't mind me saying this. You know he, he he wasn't he wasn't didn't have a reputation already established when he set up the UK Hypnosis Convention. I mean that all changed because he has an incredible reputation now. Yeah. Um, as a result of his efforts and what he's done, but um, the difference with me is that of course I have a reputation and and that I do polarize a bit of opinion out there sometimes because of um, where I'm at and what I say and and the things that I believe are important to move our field forward and the people that are quite happy 
with it being in the darkness and in the dark ages and and it being on the fringes um um you know don't necessarily welcome my voice very often and my contribution so i do tend to polarize opinion so if i just suddenly turned up and just said you know hey everybody i'm doing it now i'm going to be choosing who's speaking and i'm going to be choosing what's happening and i'm going to be choosing everything and i'm going to dictate this thing according to my particular approach and so on i think um i'd probably start driving some people away i mean some people would be running into my arms i'm sure um, um, but you know, I would, just, I would potentially be driving some people away. And second of all, you know, I, I didn't want to have to do all of that work myself. So a team that I work closely with, um, I'm a group of professional colleagues that are very, very dedicated to the hypnotherapy field are helping me out. And they're a group of people that I work with, with, with regards to a particular organization. Um, and, and we're going to, we're going to be working together. So, you know, my close friends, Lindsay Shepard and Steve Baxter and Etain McNulty and Sarah Mortimer and Tara Folks and Annalise Kirk. You know, we've got a really neat group of people that are all going to be dedicated to, to, to developing and doing different aspects of the convention. So even though I've kind of, um, I'm, I, I'm going to be the kind of poster boy in some respects, um, um, it's, it's not going to be a dictatorship. Yes. Yeah, no, that sounds... Um... That's a, it's a good way of, of sharing the load and and also providing some balance, I guess. Yeah. But um, so I guess you must feel quite strongly about um, community building and uh, and how how this can have a positive effect on the yeah. industry. Well, absolutely. <clears throat> um, I, I think I think community within our field is is really important. I think to to share and to share learning and to share education and to disseminate research and and things like that you know so one of one of one of the areas that i am going to be influencing the the convention in a slightly different direction is that i'm going to be introducing some academics and researchers into the speaker lists for example um, because i think that's important and i think that's that's going to be the shared learning experience and that's going to be some of the, the influence that i have upon the way it's going to be run but largely it's going to be very similar um, but one of the, you know one of the things I've always attempted to do with my podcast, and one of the things I've always attempted to do with with our teaching, is is always emphasise it's really important to know both sides of the debate, both sides of the discussion, and community building gives you the opportunity to do that, to to draw upon lots of other experiences and draw upon the diversity that exists within this field, and you know to to to, to do our best to to embrace that diversity and and grow stronger as a result of it. That. I do have some challenges with with community building within the field and that is that I think there are kind of almost like you know I mean we mentioned Elman and Ericsson earlier I mean there are some people that are fanatical about each of those kind of approaches there are people you know and groups of uh, you know around certain schools and around certain gurus or leaders or people that have created um, um, certain approaches and what happens is they build a community around that and um, they're impervious to any kind of flexibility or dissenting perspective and so whereas I think it's really important to be able to take critique you know like I was talking about with peer review process um, at the top end of our call today um, you know I think um, that, that what I want to create 
and create a community that's able to to have some diversity and to have some dissenting perspectives and to have some some stimulus as far as the the, the thinking process is concerned and to to feel challenged and not just turn up wanting to wanting to um, confirm what they already knew mm. now and and so you know, I need to represent that and I need to represent as far as that's concerned. So that means, you know, I need to welcome some, some dissenting perspectives to my own view. And I need to welcome and make friends and build bridges with people that, 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 that and, and, and approaches that perhaps in the past, it, you know, I, I may not have done. Um, and, and so I think whilst I've got some challenges with the community out there, you know, the, the, one of the main reasons that I don't, I don't bicker on forums anymore. Um, you know, <laughs> a, 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 as well as I'm just driving me mad for years and years, um, 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 is, is simply because I decided to take the Gandhi approach, and that is instead be the change that you wish to see. You know, so rather than being on there trying to write everybody and trying to convert them all to my way of thinking, instead, you know, attempt to be a good example. And, yeah. and as far as community building is concerned and the convention is concerned, I want it to be a good example where 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 em, embracing diversity, welcoming of dissenting perspectives, and 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 so on is is encouraged, and it can lead and be a good example to the rest of the field. Yeah, no, I think it would be brilliant. I'm really looking forward to seeing. The changes, um, which I'm, I'm sure will, will be gentle, um, most of. Oh, way, absolutely. But... I mean, largely, the, 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 you know, largely, um, it would be foolish of us to do anything different, um, to do anything massively different to the very successful um, um, formula that Nick has put together. Um, so, you know, the, the 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 influence that I have and the changes that I make are gonna are, are gonna be quite are gonna be quite subtle to begin with. Mm. I mean, can, can you talk about sort of who you've got coming potentially? Um, um, I've got or is that some... still secret? Yeah, yeah, it, it, it kind of is. Like, so we know. Um, um, I've got, I've got a whole bunch of stuff, but um, I've got some really exciting stuff that I will announce on here. But I've got some really, really important researchers um, based in the UK that are coming to speak. Um, and um, yeah, 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 yeah. I, I would get into lots of trouble with people if I started yeah. announcing them on my podcast before they've <laughs> even been announced to to, to, to to other circles. Yes, no, of course. But but even so, if they are academic researchers within, within the field in the UK, then that will be exactly. exciting in its yeah. own right. Yeah, really exciting. But, and, um, you know, they, 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 they may not be quite as popular as some of the some of the people that we have there and some of the characters that are really well established. And I understand that. Um, but they're definitely going to be able to advance education and to offer something um, really what I would consider to be really useful, beneficial and, and beautiful. Excellent. Well, Adam, I can see the time is rolling on. Yeah. And, uh, I, I, I'm, I could talk to you for hours and, oh, likewise. and not, not just on this on this topic, but. Um, and I'm sure we'll we'll find some time, maybe after Christmas, where we can um, sit down and have a have general general chats about stuff. That's separate yeah, to absolutely, this absolutely. But like like we do when it gets when it gets late at the convention, <laughs> and we're we're having drinks and <laughs> exactly exactly banter is flowing. Yeah. Um, but I do have one final question, which um, which I have to ask you, um, yeah. and that is: Have you seen the film? The Manchurian Candidate. Yeah, so so this is this is an interesting one because I'd read the book 
Okay, um, um, I, I read the book The Manchurian Candidate, the, the novel, and um, um, I was told that if I wanted to, you wanted to watch the film, you've got to watch the black and white one and don't watch the color, don't watch the color one, um, that, that was because the first one was was truer to the book. So I've mm. never, I, I, I'm embarrassed to say it, that I've never seen, you know, someone in my role should surely have seen the, 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 the colour one, the 2004 one with, I think it's got Denzel Washington in or someone. Like Washington. Um, yeah, but, but I have seen the black and white one. Excellent. Yeah, Excellent. And, um, and, and I really like it. Um, um, I really like it as, as a thought, you know, I'm really into sci-fi. I'm really into sci-fi, you know, and, and, and I was someone who wanted to believe. And anybody that's followed my, you know, followed any of my work knows I'm a sucker for sci-fi. I love it. Um, um, and, um, but I, um, but yeah, the, the, the kind of central premise of, and the application of hypnosis is, is proper kind of George Estabrook style um, type of, type of hypnosis, which, which I'm, I, I'm, I'm not too convinced on. More more research required, Kurt. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. It is. <laughs> well, Adam, I'd like to say thank you for coming on my podcast. And <laughs> let you know, it's nice for the audience to realise that you know, you're no longer going to be in charge of this, and, and I'll be interviewing the people that I want to talk to from now. On. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, it. But no, no, obviously, no, um, no. Thank you for letting me come and interview you. It's been a pleasure. Thank um, you for doing I'm, it. I'm very honoured to be the person that gets to ask you questions. Yeah. Uh, because clearly you could have chosen anyone um and um i felt that that was like quite deep informative um you know like like always you're you're eminently brilliant at um at being able to express yourself and and clarify your ideas uh verbally that i i i hope that everyone got masses um of of good quality information from this if only yeah. just to understand where you're coming from when they catch you in the middle of a of a discussion after several gin and tonics at <laughs> yeah exactly convention yeah and uh, and i just want to thank you kev uh thank you for doing it and thank you for for being so generous with your time and your own expertise and thank you for for reading for reading that bit out that i just asked you to do <laughs> I, I, I don't remember what, what have I read out <laughs> no memory of what that could possibly have been um, but yes thank you Brilliant. thank you very much mm -hmm.